Good day, everyone. It's um, fantastic to be together, and uh, good day to you at home, um, those up in the hall. Uh, fantastic to be around God's Word. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you that uh, you are so good, that your Word to us is so good, that it's so profoundly true and rich and life-giving. Uh, please, this morning, continue to speak to us as we uh, look into that Word. Uh, please show us more what you are like, what we are like, and uh, how we are to live. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Proverbs, there's a proverb that says, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Have you um, had someone like that? Have you got someone like that? Perhaps more than one person, someone you can really trust, someone who you know will stick by you through thick and thin, someone who will be with you no matter what, someone who has your back. Someone who turns up when you really need them to turn up. It's 2am, you're in the hospital, your father has just died. You look up and they're there. You don't know how they knew, you don't know how they got there, but they're there. They're there for you. You find yourself in that really difficult spot. You need help, big help, costly help. They come through. They are with you when you're at your best. They're with you when you're at your worst. There's someone you know you can rely on. Perhaps a friend, a family member, perhaps a spouse who is there for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, who loves and cherishes you no matter what. Perhaps brother, sister, family, perhaps a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Faithfulness, what an incredibly precious thing. But by contrast, have you ever had someone who you trusted, who you thought was with you, who you thought really cared for you, who you thought would be with you when you really needed them, but when you really did need them, they just weren't there for you. When the going did get tough, they didn't stick by you. When it was going to be costly for them to do what was best for you, they just went with what was best for them. Now, you all, we all have experienced this, at least in smallish ways. People let you down. People don't do the things that they said they'd do. People don't turn up to the things they promised they said they would come to. People choose themselves over you. You trust people, and in some measure, they always turn out to be untrustworthy. You put your faith in people, and in some measure, they turn out to be unfaithful. Now we've all experienced this in some ways but some of us experience this in huge ways, in huge great betrayals of trust. For some the breach of trust has been so devastating it's meant the end of relationships. Uh, I have a, um, a, a close friend almost like a family member and uh, as she was older she retired with her husband, they did a tree change, they moved north um, but fairly soon after that she was diagnosed with MS. The husband left her, ran off with another lady. She was left on her own for the last years of her life, apart from other family and friends. Unfaithfulness. Having people, having someone who is faithful to you is just such a great blessing. Experiencing unfaithfulness can be utterly devastating. Before us, we have an incredible thing this morning, an account of the last hours of Jesus' life. An eyewitness account of the last hours of Jesus' life and their profound significance. And the account is crafted to show and highlight certain things. And I'm going to draw attention to a couple of big ones this morning. And the first thing it's, it's crafted to highlight is this. The unfaithfulness of people. The unfaithfulness of people. And it starts with the unfaithfulness of the disciples. See the very first verse, and we're starting at verse 31. Come with me there. Chapter 26, verse 31. In Matthew, the account starts, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. 
This very night you'll fail to stick by me when I need you the most, Jesus says. Jesus is very, very clear on what he thinks about the ability of humans to be faithful when it really, really counts. He knows what's within a person. He knows that they won't stick by him when the going gets really tough. But the other reason that he knows that they'll fail him is because he knows his Bible well. He knows the prophecy and he understands the prophecy of Zechariah 13 verses 7 to 9 that we read before and that's quoted here in verse 31 is ultimately about him. He knows that he's the shepherd. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus knows ultimately he's the shepherd who will be struck and the disciples are the sheep who will scatter. It's the sovereign plan of God promised in the Old Testament centuries before. And yet at the same time, in this moment, it's the disciples making real decisions, real choices, and who are being held responsible for their actions. Peter responds by saying, verse 33, No, Jesus, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Verse 34, Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. See, the disciples loved Jesus. They followed him. They were committed to him. They wanted to be faithful to him no matter what. They said they would be. And then the end of verse 56, have a look over there. Jesus has just been arrested. The end of verse 56 all the disciples deserted him and fled. Everyone leaves Jesus. In the end, he will be alone. The disciples pledge to be faithful, stick with him no matter what, but when the going gets tough, and it gets really tough, put yourself in their shoes, they run away. Even before the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we had the account read for us, when Jesus really needed them to stay awake and pray, they couldn't even do that. They wanted to, their spirit was willing, but their flesh was weak. The frailty and brokenness of their humanity was weak and they fell asleep. Even in this small task that Jesus needed, they failed Jesus. They failed to recognise the incredible nature of the moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. They failed to recognise the need of Jesus. They failed to be faithful to Jesus. The unfaithfulness of the disciples. But in Peter, we get to see a little more. We get to see the failure of the most assertive and possibly the most faithful of the disciples of Jesus. When all the other disciples flee, did you notice Peter doesn't? He continues to follow Jesus, but notice verse 58. He follows at a distance. This is the one who has done the best out of them, the most faithful, the most committed, the most determined to stick with Jesus, and yet he follows at a distance. He doesn't want to be associated with Jesus and so he goes and he sits with the guards, with the servants in uh, the, the courtyard of the high priest to see the outcome of the trial but hopefully in relative safety. But then he's confronted by a servant girl, verse 69. You with Jesus of Galilee, she says, and the fear spikes in him and he says to the girl, I don't know what you're talking about. This is the one who loves Jesus, wants to be faithful, wants to stick by him, said he would, but in fear he denies knowing Jesus. Now, it can be harsh on Peter. Imagine yourself. Put yourself in, in Peter's shoes. Verse 71, Peter is again confronted by another servant girl. Now, if you're Peter, you're probably thinking, what is with these servant girls? Why won't they leave me alone? And this time he denies even more strongly, I don't know the man. And then verse 73, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. 
your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know the man. Is there a stronger possible denial than that? At that moment, verse 75, Peter, um, verse 74, immediately the rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. In this moment, Jesus' words are shown to be faithful. This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. At the same moment when Peter is shown to be unfaithful to his word. Even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you, Jesus. And have you never felt like Peter who goes outside and weeps bitterly for his unfaithfulness to Jesus? Peter loves Jesus but fails him, wants to stick by him no matter what, says he will but fails him. The disciple who does the best of all the disciples is a picture of humanity. The best of people are people at best. The best of us fail Jesus and let him down. The best of us fail each other. The best of us are in some measure unfaithful. Now, it's worth noting this is before the resurrection of Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon Peter and the disciples, after which Peter and the other disciples are much more bold and fearless. But even so, the spirit-filled Christian fails in many ways. Even so, Peter, later in life, out of fear, pulls back from eating with the Gentiles and only when corrected, rebuked by the Apostle Paul, um, repents of that. The Peter episode functions as bookends for this section. Start, finish. The section begins with Peter saying, I'll never disown you, Jesus, even if I have to die with you. And Jesus says, yes, you will. <laughs> and the section ends with Peter having denied Jesus three times and weeping bitterly in the aftermath of his failure. The very structure cries out, humans are not the heroes of this story. Humans are not the failures, the, the saviors with the failures. Humans are not the faithful ones. We're not the ones who stick by God no matter what. We're the ones who need the hero, who need the saviour, who need someone who is faithful no matter what. And between the bookends of the disciples' failure to be faithful, we get the most wonderful, beautiful, powerful, incredible picture of faithfulness that could be imagined. Incredible contrast. The failure of Jesus' closest followers contrasted with the utter faithfulness of the Lord. Unfaithfulness with faithfulness. But before we get there, there's another little piece sitting between the bookends that sits alongside Jesus' faithfulness and stands in sharp contrast. Between the bookends of the disciples' unfaithfulness, there sits the faithlessness of the religious leaders. The faithlessness of the Jewish religious leaders. See, the disciples, as we've seen, trusted Jesus, loved him, wanted to be faithful but failed. The Jewish religious leaders are faithless. They hate Jesus, are hostile to Jesus, will stop at nothing to be rid of Jesus. So much so, we see in verse 55 onwards, the Jewish leaders have Jesus arrested at night when there's no crowds around. And they bring Jesus to trial hastily in the early hours of the morning, hastily drawing together the Jewish ruling council of the Sanhedrin at Caiaphas' house rather than its regular normal meeting place. There's a number of laws being broken through all this. It's a rig trial. It's not after justice, but for the sole purpose of condemning Jesus to death, though he's done nothing wrong. And so verse 59, the Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus. Verse 60, bringing false witnesses forward. These are the actions of the faithless, the godless, the evil, who are 
will do anything to get rid of Jesus. And when they do condemn him, they mock him, they spit on him, they slap him, they abuse him. This is humanity. At its worst, faithless. Standing in hostile opposition to God and his man Jesus, like the Jewish religious leaders. Or Judas, who betrays Jesus for cash. At best, humanity is unfaithful. Wanting to be faithful to God, but failing. Like the disciples, like Peter. But as I said before, between the bookends of the disciples' failure to be faithful and alongside the faithlessness of the religious leaders, there sits this striking, incredible contrast, the faithfulness of Jesus. Faithful in extremely difficult and terrifying circumstances. And we see this in three ways throughout the account. Firstly, we see Jesus is faithful despite anguished distress. And we see this in the account of the Garden of Gethsemane that was read for us, verses 36 to 46. In this moment, in the garden, Jesus is in deep, deep anguish and distress. Here in the garden and then again on the cross are the two moments where we see Jesus the most distressed he ever is, I think. At almost every other point, he seems in such calm control. Even as he's arrested after this, even as he's taken to trial, even as, he, as he's taken to crucifixion, he's calm and controlled. But here, verse 37, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Are there stronger words? My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. In Hebrews 5 it says, Jesus offered up prayers with fervent cries and tears. He's in deep mental, emotional and spiritual anguish in the garden. And it's because he is filled with incredible fear. He's in fear and terror of finally fulfilling the mission for which he has come. Have you ever stood um, up high on a rock jump or a bridge that you're going to jump off and in that moment when you look down you see the reality of the situation, you see this is a long way up and, and there's that moment, am I actually going to do this or am I not going to, this is the moment for Jesus times a million. What he's looking into is the most terrifying thing imaginable. The reality of the situation is right there before you. Will I do this? Will I not do it? Because he knows what is coming the next morning and he knows what is coming is far deeper and more terrifying than physical death. Verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He's terrified, 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 terrified of the cup of the Lord's wrath. It's an image used a number of times in the Old Testament. Come with me to one of them. Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51, verse 17. Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. And then down in verse 21. Therefore hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk, but not with wine. This is what the sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people, 
See, I've taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. The cup, the goblet of God's wrath, is a powerful, terrifying image of the righteous, just judgment of God. To drink the cup is to have God's righteous anger against sin and failure to be faithful fully poured upon you. you. You can imagine the image, can't you? The cup boiling, steaming with the holy, just anger of the holy, just God against sin. That's what Jesus is in agony and anguish over. He looks over the edge and he sees what he will plunge into in the morning. He looks into the depths of the cup and he sees that it, what he will drink the next day. He will drink the cup of the Lord's wrath, God's righteous holy anger against the sin of all people throughout all the world, throughout all of history, will be poured out upon him in his death. Jesus will experience the hell of hells for us and he knows it and he's terrified and he's distressed and he's anguished. There's a great illustration about a magnifying glass stolen from John Chapman. Um, I don't know if you, when you're a kid, worked out that with a magnifying glass you could harness the, the rays of the sun down into one white-hot beam and then you could use it to burn your name into your parents' deck or you could get out in the backyard. You'd never do this. Get out in the backyard and find an ant or a bug and pop, 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 pop. Now, you never, you never would have done that. What's going on here? is the righteous, holy, just anger of God against all the sin of all the people across all the world throughout all of human history is being harnessed, God's righteous anger, into one white-hot laser beam that pours full strength, burns full strength upon Jesus as he hangs upon the cross. Jesus knows this is what awaits him in the morning. And so he's in agony because of the fear of what he's facing, but also because of the real temptation to turn away from this agony, to be unfaithful to his father, to be unfaithful to us. Jesus here faces, I believe, the greatest moment of temptation, to turn from the terror he sees before him and not drink the cup. Sure, there are moments of temptation before this, there are moments of temptation after this, in fact, in the very next little part of our passage, but I think this is the big moment, the greatest temptation. And he's alone in his agony. The disciples can't even watch and pray when he's asked them to. Have you ever seen the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, the movie, or read the book? Uh, there's this moment where Aslan, the, the ruler of the world, the ruler of the land, this great lion who symbolises Jesus, is, is walking, is going towards the place where he will be executed. And he's going there to be executed for, for Edmund, um, a, a boy who has betrayed him. He deserves to be executed for betraying the ruler of the land. And yet the ruler of the land is going there to be executed on his behalf. He dies so that Edmund might live. The rule of the world gives himself to agonising execution so that the boy who betrayed him might be saved. As he walks towards the place of execution, Susan and Lucy go with him. He's in agony, he's in deep distress and anguish, but their companionship gives him some measure of comfort. But there's a moment in which he says, I've got to go on alone. And he leaves them. This is Jesus. Jesus faces this great battle of temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane alone for us. And then the next day he goes on to drink the cup of God's wrath alone. Here is the big moment where he sees what lies before him, filled with terror and anguish, plays, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. 
And yet in the same moment, Jesus does not yield to that temptation but remains faithful. Look again at the prayer in verse 39. Going a little farther, he prayed with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Similar thing in verse 42, similar thing in verse 44, three times. If you are willing, Father, please take this cup from me. Now, Jesus knows there is no other way to save humanity, no other way to be faithful to his Father, but still prays, if there is any other way, Lord, please. But simultaneously prays, yet not what I will, but as you will. Yields himself to his Father's will. Even as he's in agony and anguish, praying, is there no other way? He's giving himself in faithful submission to his Father, faithful love to his Father, and faithful love to us to save us. For Jesus, there is the real agonizing temptation to shrink back from faithful obedience to his Father. But there is not a moment where he wavers in his faith and obedience to his Father. Even as he prays in fear and anguish, he's praying, your will be done simultaneously. Despite his great distress, Jesus is faithful. Faithful to his Father, faithful to us. And so in faithfulness, Jesus goes to his betrayal. Secondly, in this account, we see Jesus is faithful despite the power to save himself. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men set forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Without one of Jesus' companions, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to catch me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this is all taking place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. His disciple, his friend Judas, betrays him with a kiss. His mission to go to death on our behalf is taking place. His arrest is taking place. He knows that he needs to do this. He knows he must go and drink the cup. And so he's calm. Do you notice? In anguish and distress in the Garden of Gethsemane, but here calm, clear, because he's achieving his mission. Faithful to his father, faithful to us. Uh, it's just um, been the anniversary of the September 11 events, those terrible, horrible events all those years ago. Um, there's one plane that wasn't flown into buildings or flown into the Pentagon that actually came down in, in vacant fields, Flight 93. The last words I believe we have from Flight 93 took, uh, are taken from a um, mobile phone conversation between Tom Burnett and his wife, Dina. Tom Burnett said to Dina, a group of us is going to do something, Dina. Dina. No, Tom, just sit down. Don't draw attention to yourself. Tom, Dina, he told her, if they're going to crash the plane to the ground, we have to do something. We can't wait for the authorities. We have to do something now. Pray, just pray, Dina. We're going to do something. Another guy in the background, Todd Beamer. Are you guys ready? Let's roll. Calm, committed, in the face of possible sacrifice for others. But with little time to emotionally, mentally process things, Jesus, calm, 
in the face of certain, not just potential sacrifice, certain sacrifice for others, far greater sacrifice for others, fully understanding the implications of what he is about to do because he has lived with them, has dwelt on them, Jesus is determined to be faithful despite the cost and so in this moment he's calm. The armed men step forward to arrest Jesus and, and chaos erupts. One of Jesus' disciples whips out a sword and tries to you know, whack the, the servant of the high priest in the head and I think he misses and takes off the ear. In another gospel we hear that Jesus reaches out, touches the man's ear and heals him. In a moment where it might seem that Jesus is out of control, a small player taken up into a chaotic moment, no, no, Jesus is absolutely calm and in control and shows his power and his compassion. It's a large crowd made up of the temple guard, other zealous armed Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, they're armed with swords and clubs and here's Jesus. Small band of his closest followers, two swords amongst them, ordinary blokes. It would seem that the events are totally outside Jesus' control, that he's powerless to save himself, but the opposite is absolutely true. Look at verse 52 again. Put your sword back in its place for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Stop that. Violence is not my way. And those who hand out violence, beware, you often receive violence in return. But then, it, then verse 53, Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Who is in control in this moment? If Jesus so asked his Father, his Father would send him 12 legions of angels to his, to his aid. That is the size of some of the largest armies fielded by the Roman Empire in that day. And every angel is a mighty warrior. This is the host of heaven. The angels are the, the host of heaven, the armies of heaven. Every time someone encounters an angel in, in the Gospels, they fall down as though dead. Or in the Bible, they fall down as though dead because they're so terrified. If Jesus chose to, he could wipe out this force like that. At his trial, at his execution, he could have come down from the cross and annihilated his enemies. He has such power in his grasp and yet he restrains it. He's the one who healed people of crippling illnesses, who raised the dead back to life, who stilled the violent storm. Jesus is the one who, who flung the universe into being, for he is the Lord God Almighty come in the flesh. More power than we could possibly imagine. And yet he allows men to arrest him. He doesn't use his power to save himself because he's committed to his mission to die, to drink the cup, to be faithful to his father, to be faithful to us. And did you notice what Jesus said in verse 54? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? I could destroy you with an angelic army, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. The promises of God, my Father, in the Old Testament must come to pass because he is faithful and I am faithful to him and I am faithful to you who are the recipients of what was promised. And you see there in verse 56 that this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. All God's promises are coming to fulfillment here. The wave of promise is crashing down. Years ago when I was in year eight, in woodwork class, we were learning to turn wood on a lathe. And um, I worked out that this lathe used to you know, suck in all the dust and the shavings and that sort of thing through a, a tube and into a vacuum, into a bag down the bottom. But I worked out that if you stuffed it full of as much shavings as you could, you could actually disconnect the tube from the bag. And uh, once when the teacher went out of the room, I turned it on, stuffed full of shavings, <laughs> And so I'm blowing shavings and dust around the room. The kid with asthma is like, <coughs> the other kid's like, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking, I'm the king of the school. And then the teacher walks in the door. <laughs> what do you do? Caught. 
red-handed, guilty, can't pretend that I hadn't done anything wrong, powerless to save myself. Here's the teacher, I'm the kid, what do you do? Run. So I ran and I hid in a cupboard, I locked myself in there and I don't know where I was going, but that was my, my first instinct. Opposite to Jesus, <laughs> guilty, no power to, myself, to save myself, run, get out of it. Jesus, innocent in every way absolute power to save himself it allows himself to be taken jesus faithful despite having the power to save himself thirdly and finally we see jesus is faithful despite injustice as we've already seen in verses 57 to 68 jesus trial is filled with injustice no regard for what's right no regard for what's true a sham trial designed to convict him and have him executed jesus is the one with the power to call on 12 legions of angels to fight for him and yet he submits to injustice. It's hard to submit to injustice, haven't you, haven't you found? Submits to injustice to bring about his father's plan to save the universe, humanity. Faithful to his father, faithful to us, goes to drink the cup. Have a look at verse 64. Jesus replied, But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. In his death, Jesus knows he is fulfilling the Father's plan. Daniel 7, Psalm 110. God's plan to, through Jesus' death and resurrection, exalt Jesus to rule the universe. To come in power and sit at the right hand of the Mighty One. To rule the universe and bring restoration and full salvation to the universe. It comes in the death and resurrection of Jesus and will come in all its fullness when Jesus returns. The punishment of all evil, the salvation of all who trust Jesus as Saviour. And when Jesus says these words, it seals his fate. It gives the religious leaders what they're looking for. He will now be put to death and in doing so fulfil the scriptures. Faithful, faithful, faithful. Faithful to his Father, faithful to us. Faithful in carrying out the Father's plans promised in the scriptures. Despite his anguished distress. Despite having the power to save himself. Despite the injustice perpetrated against him. Faithful to his Father to us let me draw out three implications from all of this for us we can find faithfulness in a world of unfaithfulness there's a word in the old testament that's used to describe god's dealings with people again and again and again and again and again and it's a word that for me is a place of safety a place of refuge a place of warmth the word is hesed probably can be pronounced better it's probably saying more like chesed but the word chesed means something like faithful love steadfast love enduring love the unwavering love of the lord a constant refrain throughout the old testament god for his people psalm 118 verse 1 says this i'll give thanks to the lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever his steadfast love faithful love enduring love forever love where else is that sort of love and faithfulness to be found in this world? You may have wonderfully faithful family members and wonderfully faithful friends, but can I say none are like the Lord? You may feel deeply alone and let down and betrayed. The father who failed you, the family who failed you, the friends who failed you. The Lord is like none of them. He's the perfectly faithful one. His every promise is true and kept. His every word is faithful and fulfilled. His every action is done in unwavering love for his people. He is the one who sticks by us no matter what, no matter what, through thick and thin. 
what do we see when God comes as a man? Faithfulness. To the very point of experiencing the hell of hells for us. We live in a world of unfaithfulness, but there is a place of refuge, a place of security, as in the embrace of our God. It is found in entering into the steadfast, faithful love of the Lord Jesus. There's a lovely little glimpse of this grace and faithfulness of Jesus in verse 32. Come back with me there, verse 32. I'll read 31 first. Then Jesus told them, This very night you'll all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I'll strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Verse 32. But after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. You're all going to fall away and leave me alone to die. But after I've risen... I'm going to go ahead of you into Galilee. After I've risen victorious, I want to see you again. I want to continue our relationship. I want to bring you into the blessings of the new age. I've not written you off despite how you will let me down, including you, Peter. The disciples fail to be faithful to Jesus, but Jesus does not fail to be faithful to them. Hesed. Second implication. Thinking humanity is the solution to the world's problems is craziness. <laughs> Thinking humanity is the solution to the world's problems is craziness. The whole account screens this. Jesus is the hero and we aren't. Jesus' solution and we aren't. We need saving and only Jesus can do it. But our society is increasingly, many societies, are humanistic in their thinking. That is, humans are at the centre and humans are the answer and solution to everything. Is the environment a problem? Our society says, we will fix it. We humans are the solution to the environment problem. We're the heroes we can overcome. Actually, the Bible teaches that God is the solution to the environment problem. God is the only one who can fix the environment. The environment is profoundly broken by our sin. And it's only going to be fixed when Jesus returns to recreate it, one, by his death and resurrection, by drinking the cup. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we as humans should do nothing about looking after God's good creation until then. We should. But our world sees humans as the heroes, humans as the only hope for the environment. Such arrogance. Ultimately, God is the only hope for the environment. Is there a coronavirus problem? Our society says we will fix it. I don't know if you saw it in the news about three weeks ago. Um, top American physician and immunologist, Dr. Anthony Fauci, told the world in Australia in an interview, he said, we're going to get out of this. We're going to end this. It's going to end in Australia. It's going to end all over the world because we have the capability of doing it. It's up to us. And he's confident we're going to do it by creating an effective vaccine. Now, we pray, God willing, that we will develop an effective vaccine. But it's God willing. The pride, the hubris to think that humans are able to accomplish anything without regard to God. We should be crying out to God for his mercy as we humbly work on a vaccine. And in the end, the only end to all disease in this world is the coming of the Lord Jesus, who will destroy it once and for all, a new world without sickness, without death, won by him drinking the cup. Jesus is the hero, not us. Jesus is the conqueror of disease and sickness and death, not us. Jesus is the hope. Jesus is the saviour, not us. He stands alone. No one can ever do what Jesus did and all fail apart from him because we all sin. We all give into temptation. We're all in some measure cowards, in some measure unfaithful. He's the only man of perfect courage and love and faithfulness. I find, I don't know about you, but I find in the narrative of my own imagination or dreams, 
I'm the hero (laughs) or want to be the hero. The one who stands out or comes through or gets the job done. But the reality is I and every one of you fails as the hero, fails to stand faithfully. And I think this is one of the most compelling apologetics for the truth of Christianity. Jesus is the hero. God is the hero, not humans. Because human-centeredness is nowhere more pervasive than in religion. Human religion always comes up with humans as the centre and humans as the solution and humans as the heroes. But Christianity is clear, no, Jesus is the hero. He's the only one can save. In God's true way of salvation, the only solution to the problem is Jesus. But human religion always makes humans the hero. Religions always have humans as as the centre and the ones who are able to make ourselves right with God, make ourselves acceptable to heaven or paradise, whether it be by our prayers or pilgrimages or fasting or self-denial or meditations or good deeds or ceremonial washings or rituals or church attendance or offerings or service or humans always make up religions where we earn our right standing with God and our entry into paradise because humans want to be the hero. So we think we can be good enough for God, even though all evidence is totally to the contrary. The true way of salvation, true religion, is that God must save. Jesus has to be the hero. God has to make us right with himself. The only way is for Jesus to drink the cup of God's wrath that we deserve, to take the punishment in our place, so that we can be forgiven and accepted as God's friends. Is there any other way? Jesus asked. No, there is no other way is the answer. Will you let Jesus drink the cup for you? The cup of hell. The cup of eternal punishment. Because in the end, either you will drink it, or Jesus has drunk it for you. Either you will face eternity under the judgment of God, Or you can give it to Jesus who has drunk it fully down to its dregs and drained it on the cross and in his death. There is one way to be saved. Give Jesus the cup so the punishment is taken from you and turned onto him so that you can be right with God and be with him for all eternity. Put your trust in Jesus as the hero, as the saviour and your ruler from now on. Third and finally, if we have Jesus as our saviour, then he's also to be our model. If he's our saviour, is also to be our model. Once we have been saved by the faithful one, we are to be faithful people. That's the new way of the Christian life. Faithfulness, trustworthiness, stickability, commitment, steadfastness, love, being faithful, whatever the cost, to our heavenly father and to each other. We'll do it failingly, we'll do it falteringly, we'll do it. Jesus has died to deal with that. But that's what we're growing into. To our Heavenly Father, faithful to our Heavenly Father like Jesus was faithful to his Heavenly Father. Faithful in doing what the Father wanted, despite the cost to me. That's what Jesus was doing in the garden, the perfect model. He desired that the cup be taken away. But his greater, far deeper desire was that your will be done, Father. That I do the will of my Father was Jesus' greatest desire. Is that our greatest desire, to be faithful to my Heavenly Father? God wants us to come to him in prayer and express our desires for him and pray for the things we want. But with the ultimate attitude, but your will be done. Because what our desire is most to be is, I want what you want to happen, Father. I want to be faithful to you. 
And a big part of being faithful to our Heavenly Father is being faithful to his mission. Faithful to his mission to see people saved and grow and stand firm in Jesus, which means I'll be faithful to gathering together as God's church as I'm able. I'll be faithful to gathering together around the word in small groups. I'll be faithful in using my gifts and abilities and time and money to serve God's people. I'll be faithful in doing all I can to seek seeing people come to faith, stand in the faith, remain in the faith. Like a child serving in the father's business, in the family business. Faithful to my heavenly father. Faithful to each other. There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He's with you no matter what. Never perfect, but pretty good. Now some of you have that friend. Or friends. Or family members. Or spouse. But even if you do, none are perfect. And many don't. What's the solution? Is it to look around for that person? To look for the faithful friend for yourself? To look for that relationship of steadfast love? No, rather that's to embrace the fact that we have that if our faith is in Jesus. We have the faithful one. We have that relationship of perfect love and faithfulness. It's not to look around for that. No, it's to be that person for others. Not to look for the faithful person to satisfy my needs, but rather to be the faithful, steadfast one who is there for others' good. If we learn to trust Jesus who is faithful who is perfectly steadfast, then increasingly it frees us to be steadfast and faithful to those around us, regardless of how people treat us. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if at your funeral people said or thought things like, he was a man of his word. She was a woman of her word. What they said, they did. They kept their promises. They were there when I needed them. They stuck by me. When things were bad, they turned up for me. When I needed them, they were there. I They prayed for me. They rang me. They did what was best for me, even though it was costly for them. They cared about my spiritual life. They did all they could to keep me strong and growing in Jesus. They were committed to Jesus and his people, whatever that meant. They gathered, they served, they loved, they gave, they sacrificed, they lived for the good of others. And won't it be even more wonderful for Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your incredible faithfulness, for Jesus' incredible faithfulness, that despite how we've treated you, um, your faithful love endures. Thank you for Jesus that despite his distress, despite his power to save himself, despite the injustice perpetrated against him, despite the cost, he was perfectly faithful to you and to us. Please enable us to trust him as the only faithful one, the only hero and saviour, And thank you that in him there is forgiveness for all our failures and unfaithfulnesses. Please, Lord, we pray this morning for anyone who has not yet let Jesus drink the cup of your wrath for them. Please enable them to do this this morning. Please enable all of us to turn to Jesus daily as the only perfectly faithful one and cultivate our relationship with him. And please enable us to take Jesus as our model and to grow to be more and more like him, faithful in every way to you and each other. And in his name we pray. Amen.